Welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about sex, coronavirus, and loneliness. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, I'm talking about COVID-19, sex, and relationships. It seems like all anyone can talk about these days is the novel coronavirus COVID-19. I know many of you turn to podcasts to escape from the constant feed of information about the horrors of COVID-19, and I certainly didn't plan on talking about it this week, but it's completely consuming my brain, so I decided to make the podcast all about coronavirus this week. I thought one way the Do We Know Things podcast could add a voice of reason to the discussions about COVID-19 is to talk about some of the information about sex and COVID-19 that I've seen circulating on the internet. Like, oh my God, having sex or masturbating will not actually protect you from COVID-19. Come on, people. In this episode, I'll also talk about New York City's safer sex memo that was circulating on social media. I'll talk about research on relationships and on loneliness. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first, since this is a podcast focused on research, I wanted to talk about some research that's being done right now to study our experiences during the COVID-19 epidemic. There are three studies that I know of looking at sex and relationships. I'm going to put links in the show notes and on the Do We Know Things Twitter account and on the DoWeKnowThings.com website if you're interested in learning more and participating. The first one is based out of the Kinsey Institute. On the consent form, it says, The purpose of this study is to better understand the romantic and sexual lives of adults during the current COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. And to participate in this study, you fill out an initial survey about sex and relationships, and then provide your info to be contacted for two follow-up surveys. You don't need to be in a sexual or romantic relationship to participate in the study. Uh, And if you're interested, the link is knsy.in backslash covid-19. And I'll put that link in the show notes so you can just get it there if you want. Another study from researchers in Canada, the U.S., and the Netherlands is called Love in the Time of COVID. On the website, which is loveinthetimeofcovid.me, the mission of the project is described as one, to connect with as many people around the globe as we can to hear their stories, two, to attempt to determine how the pandemic is affecting people's relationships in different countries and cultures, and three, to learn what types of people are most psychologically vulnerable to the pandemic's effects. If you participate in this study, you'll complete an initial survey and then follow-up surveys every two weeks during the pandemic. The Love in the Time of COVID website also has a resources page, which has suggestions for living during this time of social isolation. The third study is not sex or relationship-specific, but you can opt into questions about sex. This study originated at St. Avex University in Nova Scotia, but is now an international collaboration. The study website is copingstudy.com slash COVID, and it says, We want to learn more about how people are coping and responding to the pandemic. We are interested in your experiences, regardless of your views of the pandemic. This study has two parts, and you can do one or both. 
For the first part, you fill out an online survey, and at the end of the survey, there's an option to answer additional questions about sexuality, sexual behavior, parenting and family, and social media use. You can also then opt into the second part of the study, which is where you will complete daily diary entries for 30 days during the pandemic. What's super cool about this study is at the end of it, researchers will actually send you your data. So maybe it's the data nerd in me, but I think it's pretty cool that you can have this record of your daily thoughts and feelings during the next month of this pandemic. To find out more, you can go to the study website, which is copingstudy.com COVID. So I wanted to do a social isolation check-in with my social isolation partner, Jeremy, who also happens to be my audio wizard. Hey. <laughs> So it's been a weird time being socially isolated for the last two weeks. Every day both seems long and yet goes by so fast. It's so bizarre. (laughs) Uh, Jeremy worked from home already. And as a professor, much of my work is flexible and can be done from home. But even with that, it has been this big anxiety-inducing change for me with the university being closed down. Just everything feels chaotic and anxious and it's... Yeah, it's hard to do anything, really. Um, And now, Jeremy, you're laid off of your day job as of April 1st. Yeah, that's right. Big changes. Uh, (laughs) I mean, it's anxiety-inducing, for sure. But uh, also, as you noted, I I work from home, so it's kind of nothing has changed for me yet, apart from just it's weird that nobody, like, talks to each other and stuff, so. (laughs) Right, and we both noted that watching television shows... When you see people like hug or kiss on TV that don't know each other very well, it's like, no. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. When you're watching community and somebody drinks out of a fountain, and I'm like, <laughs> why are you at a school? Why are you drinking? Oh, my God. <laughs> Call the police. It's so interesting to me how quickly we've adapted to this idea that physical contact is dangerous and bad. And for me, at least, yeah, I've, I've, my body is trained to react that way. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not necessarily a good thing. Um, I'll tell the story of I went grocery shopping last Sunday and I felt fine going to the grocery store. And then once I was there, I went into complete panic mode and I was basically on the verge of a panic attack the entire time I was grocery shopping. Just being out in public, it wasn't even that busy. I was sweating profusely. My heart was racing. I forgot half of the groceries I needed. It was an absolute nightmare. And I remember... You know, of course, I was concerned for you. I'm just like, oh, that's terrible. I I wish I could have gone because I felt like I would have been okay. And then like a week or so later, I went to um, the independent grocer in town to do a little grocery run. And I'm like, cool, bro. I got this. I got this. And then you walk in and a security guard is telling you (laughs) what to do. And instantly, I'm just like, oh, man. Well, I got to admit, the closer I got to town the more like I'm just worrying about it. I'm just looking at people. Everything seems like a threat. And then once you're in the grocery store, it everything seems like too bright and scary. And, and you're like, oh, there's a person there. There's a person there. I need to go this way. I need to go that way. Uh, it was uh, it was extremely anxiety-inducing, like real anxiety. Mm-hmm. And these are just minimal things. Like getting food, obviously, is an important part of life. But mm-hmm. I mean we're not sick. Um, we're going to be financially okay. And the, but the anxiety though, you know, being on the internet and seeing all these horror stories of people who are sick or people who are losing their jobs. I mean, you lost your job, but Mm -hmm. like, we will get through it. We have a good social safety net in Canada. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. For now. See, for now, everything's okay. We we shall see. (laughs) 
<laughs> Anyways, I'm sure everybody's enjoying this escapism <laughs> quite quite a lot. But we can talk about the things that, that, that have been good. That's true. Since the social isolation. Yeah. So one of the things about us is we are very bad at routines. Um, but we also both know that routine is what's really useful for our lives. Like our, our lives function best when there's routine, but we're also really bad at routine generally. <laughs> and so what we've been trying to do is force some routine into our days. Yes. Yes, it's true. It's, we've been uh, with the realization that we're stuck together <laughs> forever. Um, yeah, it's just like instead of sleeping until 12, it's just like try to, you know, get up and do things. And we both have stuff. We both have lot, plenty of projects we want to do on our own at home, you know. So this is a chance for me to to do my thing creatively and you as well and get work done you need to get to get done but uh, what's interesting is that we've actually fallen into a pretty decent routine i also want to make it clear that i do not sleep till noon <laughs> no i just mean no, that's something you that sleep could till happen noon. yes <laughs> but jeremy has actually been setting his alarm for 8 a.m which is like shocking and amazing yes but i made you sleep till 9 37 the other day that's so true. that was a real major major trip up there yeah, so we've established a routine where we get up at a reasonable hour, we have coffee together, um, then we do a workout, then we shower, then we meditate, then we have sex, and then Jeremy usually goes to work or does work and I do work as well. And yeah, it seems to be working. Like our relationship has been going reasonably well mm -hmm. during this period of social isolation. I think it helps that both of us really like being trapped at home. Um, and Jeremy is worse than I am. Like, I've been going out for long walks every day. <laughs> Jeremy basically has not left I'm like, I'm cool. The house. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Oh, look, I'm just going to go play with my shiny new iMac for eight hours. <laughs> One of the things I've mentioned before in this podcast, I think even the last episode, was that my anxiety often manifests physically. So I don't know what's in my brain, but just my body is like, things are bad. Um, and it's been really interesting because I've just wanted to run. And I've been a runner or a jogger, I guess, for a long time. And usually it's sort of a, a hassle to like motivate myself to go run or do any sort of workout. But my body is so heightened with anxiety that my that's all I want to do is like run. Um, so that's been interesting to watch that happen. And it definitely helps. Like I feel better after I run or after I work out, like any sort of intense thing that kind of gets me out of my head and pushes my body seems to really help with calming my body down. Um, which reminds me of uh, both a book and a podcast that talk about this concept. Um, so the burnout book <clears throat> by Emily Nagoski and Amelia Nagoski is something that I'm actually teaching a whole class about next year, if we ever go back to the university, um, on and the, the book's on burnout, but it's also about completing the stress response cycle. That's a big key of it. Um, and this idea that when you feel stress, like your body wants to run, your body wants to do something. Um, and so doing things, whether it's like um, having social contact with others, which is what social species do when they feel stress. And so it's hard when you're isolated, but other, there's other ways you can do that. Um, and if you don't have access to the book, they've actually produced a podcast called The Feminist Survival Guide. And it talks about all the ways you can complete the stress response cycle, everything from, you know, 
crying to running to laughing to <laughs> uh, hugging if there's someone that is in your social isolation pod. Um, there's all sorts of ways you can um, use you know, physical or psychological ways of releasing the stress that you might feel in your body right now. Um, which also reminds me of another podcast that I'm listening to um, called The Polyvagal Podcast. And this is something I've been interested in for a while. I learned about the polyvagal theory, gosh, back in like 2007 or 8 at a conference. And my first reaction to it was, you know, I study the autonomic nervous system and I haven't heard of this. There's no scientific papers on it. Therefore, it's not a real thing, and I completely dismissed it. And thanks to the glories of Instagram, I discovered Clementine Morrigan, who writes a lot about polyvagal theory and trauma and polyamory. And from her writing on polyvagal theory, I sought out other resources, and I just became very fascinated with this. And so now I'm listening to the Polyvagal podcast, um, which talks about the different ways our bodies exist in the world. And so our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system and how there are just different modes. So there's safe and social mode, which is when you feel safe and your body feels safe. And essentially, you're not feeling any threats in your environment. So you can cognitively feel safe. Like right now in my house, I feel safe. I know that nothing can harm me here. But because there's this global pandemic outside in the world, my body is signaling like something is wrong, something is danger, dangerous, so it can be harder to get into safe and social mode. So when you detect danger, or when your body is picking up on danger in the environment or in the world, um, there are different modes that you can be in. So one, or well, I guess it's kind of two different things, fight, which is being, you know, angry, aggressive, um, feeling very agitated, flight, which is, you know, being avoidant, wanting to run away from things. Um, and then I would say the most extreme was the freeze mode or just when your body essentially shuts down. Um, and often when we talk about being under threat, we talk about fight or flight, but rarely is fight, flight, or freeze included in that statement. And I think it's important to know that freeze is a part of that. And especially people who've experienced trauma in their history, freeze is often a go-to place um, during times of stress. And so I've been learning a lot from the Polyvagal podcast. And one of my psychologist friends once told me that I'm addicted to self-improvement, uh, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. I like to learn things about myself and work on improving myself. Um, but part of the problem is I try to get everybody else around me to do it too, like Jeremy. <laughs> and so I was like, oh my gosh, this is so important. It's so interesting. You need to listen to this. <laughs> I'm sure I don't know what you mean. <laughs> and Jeremy's response was... <laughs> no. <laughs> basically. He's just like, I need to find things that are my interest or work for me, not just have you tell me all the time the way to fix myself. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, it's it's adorable, helpful, and annoying all at the same time. All at the same yeah, time. Yeah. It's kind of like, here, read this. Here, read that. <laughs> I'm like, cool. Okay. Well, let me finish reading that. Oh, no. Here, here's a new thing. It's, it's, it's great. I mean, you have lots of extremely useful information and ideas that have transformed my life. See? It works. <laughs> no. Um, so, Jeremy, did you know that this is our 10th episode? I didn't until you said it. <laughs> 
So back at the beginning of March, when the world was a different place, I was able to attend the second annual Atlantic Podcast Summit in Halifax. And when I was there, I learned a statistic, which I did not back up by research. I don't know if this is true or not. But here's what I was told and I believed, uh, was that on average, most podcasts do not make it beyond nine episodes. So I feel like because we've made it beyond nine episodes, this is episode 10, that's somehow worthy of celebration. Yay. <laughs> Is that up to me? I'll, I'll put some sound effects in. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So I did want to talk a little bit about the Atlantic Podcast Summit before we launch into the meat of today's episode. Um, I felt super glad to be able to go and participate. I learned a lot about promoting and creating podcasts, um, none of which I have had the time to actually implement. Um, and I got to chat with people from a few different local podcasts. Uh, Pickle Planet was there, which is a podcast on parenting-related topics that's based out of Moncton, New Brunswick. I was actually on Pickle Planet's Valentine's Day episode talking about sex and long-term relationships, if you want to check that out. Consolate Stories is a live storytelling show in Halifax, which is now a podcast as well. And storytelling podcasts are my fave besides sex podcasts. And so I was super excited to find out about a local one. And I cannot wait to be able to actually go to a live show someday again. And of course, Turn Me On podcast, which I've mentioned before on the show, and it features people talking about their sexual experiences, as well as interviews with some experts like researchers and practitioners. And I love Turn Me On and its hosts. And I've even been on the show. You can hear me on episode 77, which is called Come on the Couch. And while the information presented during the formal part of the Atlantic Podcast Summit was great, the highlight for me was the live show from the Momgasm podcast, which featured Serena Haynes who is sdh underscore rewilding on Instagram. Um, Serena is a somatic sex educator, and she just exudes this amazing sensual energy. I loved her Instagram feed, or I still do love her Instagram feed, um, and it was super awesome to get to witness her in person. Um, I also got to meet Sarah and Lindsay from the Momgasm podcast, which was super cool. And the live show was hilarious and informative, and the recording is now available on the Momgasm podcast, so you can enjoy it too. I definitely re recommend checking it out. Okay, this isn't Survivor. <laughs> Having sex will not grant you actual immunity from coronavirus. I keep seeing posts online of people saying like, oh, masturbate or oh, have sex. It boosts your immunity and will protect you from the virus. And some just say the part about boosting immunity, but some are explicitly saying this can help prevent you from getting coronavirus. When I set out to write this podcast, before doing any research at all, I was going to say something like, although sex can boost immune function, that doesn't mean it makes you immune to the virus. Increased immune function just increases your body's ability to fight infection. But then I looked into the actual research, of which there is very little. Uh, or maybe I'm just not using the right search terms. Uh, but basically, my take from the few studies that do exist about the relationship between sex and immune function in humans is that the research is just not consistent. If the question is, do we know things about how sex affects the immune system, my answer is no. The study that all of the media articles seem to cite is a 2004 article by Charnetsky and Brennan that compared students who had no sex, who had infrequent sex, meaning less than once per week, frequent sex, one to two times per week, or very frequent sex, more than three times per week. 
They measured salivary immunoglobulin A, which is an antibody often used as a measure of immune function, and found that in the group of people who said that they had sex frequently, they had higher levels of immunoglobulin A. The other three groups basically all had the same levels. So people who had very frequent sex had lower immune function than those who had frequent sex. So even within this one study, there's mixed results on the relationship between sex and immune function. It's also important to note that this is a correlational study. And as we all should know, correlation does not equal causation. All this means is that there might be a relationship between immune function and having sex. But it could be that those with higher immune function are hornier and have more sex. Or it could be a fluke finding that one group seemed to be dramatically different from the other arbitrarily defined groups. Or it could be something else entirely that was related to both immune function and sex. There was also no information about how many men or women were in each group, so sex could also be a factor here. In order to actually answer this question, we need an experimental study where people are assigned to have sex or not, and then we look at changes in their immune function. That would be the only way to know if there's an effect of sex on immune function. One study did do a within-person manipulation to look at immune response to masturbation. They had 11 men come in separately, um, and one day they would come in and masturbate to orgasm while watching an erotic video, and another day they would come in and just watch a neutral video and not masturbate. And so this study was able to compare their immune activity in response to masturbation versus no masturbation. And what they found is that certain white blood cells, which are immune markers, increased after masturbation for these men. So to my knowledge, this is the only experimental study that's been done on sex and immune function. There have only been a couple other studies, and these correlational studies have mostly shown decreased immune activity in response to sex or show different responses for different people. So for example, one study found that depressed women showed a negative relationship between immunoglobulin A and sexual activity, but depressed men showed the opposite effect, and there wasn't much effect on non-depressed people. Another study on women showed different immune responses to sex depending on where the person was in their menstrual cycle. The immune system is so complex, and our immune responses to sex are also complicated and driven by competing pressures. So for now, I say that we just don't know what sex does to human immune response, and we need a lot more research to be able to find out. I'm very curious to know the answer to this, so can someone please do these experimental studies for me? Or point me to something obvious that I've missed? Thank you in advance. You can always reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram at Do We Know Things, or you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com if you have more information that can point me in the right direction. Keep in mind our immune defense system is multi-layered, and the primary initial defense is our behaviors and our skin. Please abide by the guidelines from the World Health Organization and the federal health organizations such as the CDC and Health Canada. These include, number one, stay home if you can. Number two, if you are an essential worker or if you have to go out, keep six feet away from other people. Number three, wash your hands. Number four, don't touch your face. The virus needs to get into your respiratory system. If you use these external barriers to prevent it from getting into your mouth or nose, then your immune system inside doesn't matter. So do everything you can to keep it away from your damn face. You don't need an excuse like immune function to enjoy sex, by yourself or with others. If those things bring you happiness or reduce your anxiety, please do them. 
And if they don't, please don't. Solo sex is obviously the safest thing right now, so doing it by yourself, um, followed by sex with a partner you're living with and who is also following social isolation practices. I was excited to see that New York City Health published a guide to safer sex during the COVID pandemic. I'll post a link to the PDF in the show notes, but you can also find it by Googling NYC COVID sex. In the document, it notes that so far, evidence shows that COVID can be spread through saliva, mucus, and feces but not through semen or vaginal fluids. Of course, because this research is in its infancy, we don't know for sure all of the ways it's transmitted, but so far, semen and vaginal fluid seem safe. The document states what I said before about having sex by yourself or with the partner or partners you live with and trying to avoid sex with people outside of your household. It also recommends that casual daters and sex workers take a break from in-person dates. I would have liked to see more recommendations for how sex workers can get money in other ways, like maybe through government programs. It does suggest that sex workers can work online, but that's risky in the U.S. with FOSTA and SESTA, which are laws that severely limit the ability for sex work to be communicated about or performed online. Different people are going to respond to the COVID pandemic in different ways. Uncertainty the not knowing what's going to happen, can be really challenging and anxiety-inducing. For those feeling high levels of stress and or anxiety, desire or interest in sex will vary. For some, sex might be a welcome break from worrying. Sexual release through orgasm can reduce feelings of stress. For others, worrying about money, health, family, the world, etc. will completely shut down any need or desire for sex. These feelings of anxiety can also trigger trauma responses because there's this general feeling of not being safe, Um, and that can lead to shutting down or being extra agitated. And all of these responses are in the realm of normal. There are a lot of posts in the sex educator and sex positive world on social media encouraging people to masturbate and have partnered sex, and those are great choices. But for some people, it is just not an option. I just want you to know that there's no right way to feel about sex in this very weird time. There's also a lot being published on all sorts of news outlets and blog outlets and social media sites um, about relationships during the COVID outbreak. For those who are living with a partner and not leaving the house, this can be a challenging time. I've seen a bunch of articles about how to live with a person during social isolation, most of which have similar tips. The biggest thing that's always important in any relationship situation is having good communication. And that is definitely easier said than done. But don't assume that the people you're living with know what you're thinking and know what you need. You do need to talk about that. And to talk about it, you need to figure it out for yourself first. One of the articles in particular focused on research that had been done historically about uh, relationships and predicted that based on this research, it would be hard for many people who are living together. Of course, now I can't find the article because I've read about 100 of them in the last few days. But if you're struggling with being isolated with a partner or with your family, try to forgive yourself if you're feeling at your wit's end and like you hate everybody. It's really understandable. One thing that can factor into having a positive or negative experience in isolation with a partner is your degree of extroversion versus introversion. Contrary to stereotypes of introverts always wanting to be alone, everyone needs social contact. Introverts get energized from being alone and drain their energy from being with others. So it doesn't mean they don't want to be with others. It just means they need alone time to recharge between social times. Extroverts get their energy from being with others. 
This can be a challenge if there are not many others to be around, especially if their partner is not an extrovert. If you are someone who really needs conversation with others to feel good, please make Skype or Zoom or FaceTime dates with friends and colleagues. Don't expect the people you live with to meet all of your extroverted needs. And introverts, make sure you assert your boundaries and get the alone time you need. It might mean going for walks alone or having assigned spaces in your house or apartment where alone time can happen. There are also people for whom being stuck inside is torture. I am not one of those people. I am pretty happy to never leave my house and sit at a computer all day long. My sister and my dad, on the other hand, are always doing something. They never sit still. I think they both might explode before this is over. My dad salvages logs on the Fraser River in BC, so at least he has that outlet. He can go down to his boat, which is moored in an isolated location, and go out on the water by himself. My sister just walks laps around her neighborhood. When I sent her this to ask if I could talk about her, she sent me back a list of her actual routine, which is as follows. I sleep as long as I can so my day is shorter, I elliptical, then eat, clean up, study, nightly walk, lift weights, study, drink, Netflix, bed. I'm glad she has a routine. I know for many people, routine can be really helpful for mental health. Do your best to figure out what works for you, and then try to do your best to communicate that to those you're living with. And if you're living with people who have to go out, that too can be really stressful, both the going out and having someone going out to work and then coming home. We all need to try our best to be kind to ourselves and others during this time. If you're isolated alone, or even if you're not, please try to make time for social contact with others online. Humans are inherently social, and being lonely is bad for your health. One study found it was worse for mortality than smoking. Being alone is not the problem, though. It's chronic feelings of loneliness. Lots of people live very fulfilling lives alone, but if someone feels alone and isolated, that is a risk factor. Alternatively, you can also live with someone and still feel lonely. Emotionally, that might be even worse. There are also people in abusive or toxic relationships for whom this time will be dangerous or emotionally damaging. Please search for and contact domestic violence organizations in your area if you need help. The take-home message is that this can be hard. Relationships can be hard, and being alone can be hard. Within all of this difficulty, it's also really amazing to see the people connecting in new ways. Whether it's within your household, or whether it's entire cities banging pots and pans out their windows at 7pm to celebrate and thank essential workers. This is a challenging time, but humans are resilient and creative and helpful. That's all for this week's episode. It was pretty light on research and heavier on feelings. But if you do have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds for this episode are by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at paleblue.ca. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at DoWeKnowThings. And you can email me at DoWeKnowThings at gmail.com. DoWeKnowThings is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.